Let's turn in the Word of God to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1. We were thinking last night in our intro how Numbers is a book that tells us about testing, something that God still does in the present age. God is interested in reality, and so he will show us what we really are, and yet he will also build character in the midst of the testing if we allow him. And there's a lot of stories in Numbers that are famous for the failure of the Israelites, and if we weren't careful, we could get an idea that it's a very negative book, but actually it's a very positive book because it's a book about testing and the grace of God. Testing and the grace of God. And this morning, in one 40-minute session, I'm intending to take you through the first 10 chapters to prove that contention that God is gracious to the Israelites and to make application to ourselves that God is gracious to us. Just a word on methodology. The Bible is quite clear that God has distinct purposes for Israel and for the church. They are not identical God used Israel in the past, and the Bible is quite clear in sections like Romans 9, 10, and 11 that he will yet again use them in the future. It's also clear, according to the teaching of the book of Ephesians and 1 Corinthians and other books of Scripture, that the church has a distinct identity and a distinct destiny, and that's what God is doing now, saving Jew and Gentile and making them part of one spiritual body. So while I'll be talking about the people of God in a former dispensation, nonetheless, we remember what the New Testament says, that the things which were written aforetime were written for our learning. So we are taking lessons from believers who've gone before us in past ages and recognizing that in a future day, the Lord is going to again take up Israel and use them in wonderful ways. But we shouldn't think that we are replacing them because they still have a future, and God is doing something else with us now. Having said that, let's read from the Word of God, Numbers chapter 1. We'll start at verse 1. Numbers 1, 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Now, the setting here is that Israel has recently been redeemed out of Egypt. Thank you very much, buddy. Keep that one for mommy. I've already got a bottle. Thank you. Take that back to mommy. Thanks, buddy. It's good. We, we train them early to make sure daddy's well hydrated. So, by the way, today's Micah's third birthday. So if you see him around, you can wish him a happy birthday. In any case, we see the people of Israel redeemed by God. That is, God broke their chains of slavery in Egypt and brought them out, not to the wilderness as an end point, but merely as a tr- transition to prepare them to follow the Lord to a land that he promised to give them, a land 
where they would not able not only be able to come in and to prosper, but to get to know God and enjoy God, which is the chief inheritance of God's people in any dispensation, in any age. The good thing about salvation is knowing the Lord. That's the very best thing. We tell people, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, initially, this sojourn in the wilderness was supposed to be comparatively short. We're going to find out as we go through the book of Numbers, because of the failure of the people of Israel, it ends up being long. Basically, in round numbers, four decades long. I know we can go into the chronology of Deuteronomy and talk about 38 years and some months, uh, which is the actual amount of time of the discipline, but tacked on with the preparation time, we come to 40 years. In the scriptures, by the way, 40 is a number of testing or a number of judgment. So it rained 40 days and 40 nights in the time of Noah. Or you'll recall that the Lord Jesus, in his testing in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and was then tested. And so testing is associated with that number 40. Now, it's interesting that as this census is taken at the beginning of Numbers, you'll notice there's a specific group of people in view. We read there that it's males in verse number 2, and verse 3 adds, from 20 years and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. Now, essentially, in these first 10 chapters, God is preparing them. They're a nation of perhaps as many as two, two and a half million people, and God is preparing them to follow him through the wilderness. But right off the bat, he's going to say, we need to count the warriors. Now, that point shouldn't be lost on us. So if you're taking notes, Numbers chapter 1, just write over that, warfare. That's what God wants to say to these people, first of all, that in following the Lord, you're signing up for warfare. Now you say, oh, well, I'm kind of a pacific individual. I appreciate peace and I'm basically nice and can't we all just get along, you know? Uh, I don't really like to fight or quarrel and uh, I wish, uh, you know, uh, many people were like you if that's your attitude. But you say, I don't know about all this fighting stuff. Well, an old hymn put it this way. Sure, I must fight if I would win. (laughs) Because another thing that's common about following the Lord in this age, or in any age for that matter, is that you have to fight. There are enemies. To come to know the Lord is to join an insurgency. Now, it is not an insurgency overthrowing a legitimate government. There is a pretender on the throne of this world today. He's called by many names in Scripture. Ephesians 2 refers to him as the prince of the power of the air, or you could translate it the ruler of the authority of the air. 2 Corinthians calls him the God of this world. The Lord Jesus referred to him in John 14 and other places as the ruler of this world. He is a pretender. It is not his legitimate right to the throne of this world. Man has ceded control of this world to this individual by sin. The Bible also calls him Satan, the adversary, or the devil, a word which has the thought of a traducer, one who is a liar in his speech, who deceives. And so the devil keeps people in this world captive. As J.B. Lightfoot paraphrased a phrase from Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, he keeps people in the thraldom of darkness. 
It's like being under the communist regimes of Joseph Stalin or being under the Nazi regime of Adolf Hitler. There is great oppression and there is opposition to the truth. Those are just comparatively small pictures of the much greater war that's going on in this world. What the New Testament tells us is a spiritual war. Because as Ephesians 6 reminds us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the authority of darkness of this age in high places. So we're involved in a war. And Ephesians 6 tells the believer to put on the armor of God, to have our loins girded with truth, to have the breastplate of righteousness, to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, to have on the helmet of salvation, to have the shield of faith, and to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of truth. We're in a warfare, and it's a battle. We fight, as 1 John 2 reminds us, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we have to fight in this world if we're going to follow the Lord. Now, A lot of people, when they consider the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ as sinners separated from God in our sin, our default position is to think of self. We always think, well, how does this appeal to me? You know, I'll consider the claims of Jesus Christ. And if it makes sense to me, if this Christianity stuff makes sense, and and if it meets my needs, if it does what I'm looking for, then I'll believe on the Lord Jesus. They used to say of Hiram Simpson Grant, who by a typo when he enrolled at West Point forever after was known as Ulysses S. Grant, they said, really, U.S. Grant stands for unconditional surrender. Because in one of his first great victories of the War of Northern Aggression, or was it the Civil War, um, in case we have anybody south of the Mason-Dixon line, I've recently been preaching in Virginia, so I've been on my best behavior. Uh, But anyway... He said, my terms are unconditional surrender when the fort was surrendering to him. And that's basically the terms that the Lord Jesus comes with as well. He says to us, you're in a state of warfare against God. The reason your life is messed up, the reason you don't have peace, the reason you don't have joy, the reason you don't have overarching meaning, the reason you aren't content, the reason that so many things you touch are spoiled and ruined and you just can't get it together, this is all symptomatic of a deeper problem. It's sin. That you're in a state of rebellion against God and you don't even know it. It's like being born in one of those dictatorial regimes and you're taught you're in the Hitler youth from your youth and you're taught that Hitler, he's der Führer. You have to follow him. He's the absolute leader and you have to do what he says. And one day somebody comes to you and says, don't you know this man is evil? Don't you know the agenda, this Third Reich that's established is evil? Don't you know that there's another way to go? You can side with freedom. You can side with liberty. Well, how much more spiritually? When the gospel comes to us, it says you're enslaved, you're captive. You're held in this tyranny of darkness. But what God wants to do is to deliver you to the kingdom of the son of his love. And that great warfare over your soul. The battle's already been fought and won if you'll come and take the victory from the Lord Jesus. He doesn't say to you, now you must do this to be saved. You must add this to be saved. He says, no, look at the cross. 
Look at what I did there. I paid the price for your sins. I took the penalty you deserve. I took away the thing that was separating you from God, that kept you alienated from God, and I reconciled you to God. I already achieved the victory by giving my life as a sacrifice, and I rose again from the dead now to offer you brand new life. Because when a person is saved, when they trust in the Lord Jesus, they don't say, it's about me. They say, no, it's about him. They say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Jesus, it's about you. You are Lord. You are Savior. I'm trusting in what you have done. Take my life and let it be. You take my life, Lord, and make it what you want it to be. And the Lord says, very good. I'll take your life. And one thing that I'll do is I'll make you a soldier in my army. Now, we live in terrible times, so I must clarify. To be a soldier in the army of the Lord Jesus doesn't involve physically killing people. The Lord Jesus said to Pilate when he was on trial, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight to preserve it. But now my kingdom is not from hence. So we don't fight a jihad with bullets and swords and knives. We fight a war of truth where we preach the gospel, the good news. The message that God loves us, that God wants to save us, that he wants you to come over to the winning side. And he wants you to be part of the side that's already guaranteed the victory. We're just part of a mopping up operation as we battle in the last little skirmishes of a war that's already been won by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself. And so chapter one tells us this is warfare that the Israelites were being prepared for. But look at chapter 2 of Numbers, verse 1. Numbers 2, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. Now, he's arranging the camp. And he says, here's where you're going to camp. You're going to have your standards, sort of like a banner or a flag. Now, already some of you staying in housekeeping, I've noticed, you've put your little mark on those block huts. You've put up different things. I saw someone nailing up a flag and it brought a tear to my eye almost, you know. And Jake looked a little like Betsy Ross to me in that moment. But anyway, <laughs> it was very beautiful. And I saw others putting up different things that sort of customize. The, the Shapiros have beautiful lights around their huts. And so you're putting your stamp on your hut. Well, here the Lord is saying, you put the flag for your father's house, for your family. So over chapter two, we wrote over one warfare. Chapter two is identity. What is our identity? Well, our identity is connected to our father's house. To put it in the vernacular, who's your daddy? Well, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the beautiful thing. John chapter 1 tells us, To them that received him, to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God. If you're born again by faith in the Lord Jesus, you are God's child. Your identity now is that you are in his family. And that loyalty has to trump every other identity in this world. So you may have come from a great, very forceful family. That's wonderful. But now you're part of a family that's bigger than that, that's more important than that. You may love your job and your career. There's nothing wrong with that. But now you've got an identity that's bigger than your job and your career. It's being identified with the family of God. And you notice where they were to camp? 
their tents were encamped around the tent of meeting. God had another word that he described it. I know I have a few native Hebrew speakers here, so I'm always reticent when I say anything in Hebrew, but I I think they called it Hamishkan, the dwelling place, the sanctuary it's sometimes translated. We call it the tabernacle, this tent dwelling of God, where God said, I want to come and live right in the middle of your family, right in the middle of your community. I want to be the center. When you get up in the morning and look out of your tent door, the first thing you're going to see is my tent. The first thing you're going to see is I'm there. When you go to bed at night, the last thing you're going to see is I'm encamped in the midst. Let me ask you today, does your life revolve around the Lord's dwelling place? Now, the Lord's dwelling place in this age It's twofold. In one sense, we are corporately a temple of God, according to 1 Corinthians 3. When the local church meets, God is in the midst. The Lord Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And 1 Corinthians 3 calls that gathering the temple of God. And so it's not about a building. It can be outdoors such as this. It's believers coming together in the name, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us also that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So whether we think about our individual lives or whether we think about our corporate life in the church, either way, we're dealing with God's house. We're dealing with his temple. And we have to ask ourselves the question then, does my behavior, does the way I'm living reflect an identification with God's house? Am I living in such a way that God would be pleased with me, that I'm demonstrating my family identity, that I belong to the Father's family. There was the Lord right there in the midst. He wasn't going to have them march through the desert alone. The Lord was going with them, and we'll see even going before them. So they had the presence of the Lord. Now, chapters 3 and 4 talk about the setting apart of one particular family that Brother Steve mentioned last night, the family of Aaron, who were the priests, and their larger tribe, the Levites, were those who served in the tabernacle. So chapters 3 and 4, we can write over that, worship and service, because that's basically what the jobs of these people were. So as they were going through the wilderness, if you really think about God being camped out in the middle of your community and in the middle of your life, that can be a daunting prospect. The more you get to know yourself, the more you realize that in and of yourself, you fail. In and of yourself, you're weak. In and of yourself, you don't measure up. That's why we need a Savior. That's why it's all about Him. That's why we look for the righteousness of God, which is given to us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the more you know yourself, the more afraid you can be. You say, how can I have such a holy God dwell so close to me? Well, guess what? God's already thought of that. He's raised up a priesthood. In fact, in this age, according to 1 Peter 2, he's already made you part of that holy priesthood. You can't be the great high priest, though. That job's already taken. Hebrews tells us that that job is the job of a merciful and faithful high priest. He's merciful because he knows what it's like to be tested. There's no kind of testing you can go through, my brother, my sister, that the Lord Jesus can't empathize with 
can't identify with. He knows what it is like to be tested in all points, with this one exception, without sin. He's never failed. He can never sin. He's the impeccable Christ, God manifest in the flesh, the one who always did what pleased the Father. Rather than somehow lower his priesthood or make it less effective, it makes it greater. Because this is a high priest who, unlike Eli and unlike others we can read about in the Scriptures, never fails, never will be found to be undependable. We can trust in our great high priest to minister on our behalf. And the book of Hebrews chapter 7 tells us he ever lives to make intercession for us. As Psalm 121, which Brother Doug quoted in his prayer this morning, says, Our God never slumbers nor sleeps. Think about that. In our terms, 24-7, he is praying for you. He could say to Peter in Luke 22 and to the other disciples, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Now, I am not a farmer or a son of a farmer. I'm a grandson of a guy who grew up on a farm, if that counts for anything. My in-laws were farmers, and they're here, so i got to be careful what I say. But that sifting process looks kind of violent, as the wheat and the chaff are violently separated by shaking. And the Lord says, Satan wants to take all of you and shake you. In fact, that very night, in fulfillment of a more than 500-year-old prophecy from the book of Zechariah, the shepherd was going to be smitten and the sheep of the flock would be scattered. All the disciples would forsake him and flee. They were going to be shaken to their very core. None more so than Peter, who although he was a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus, was going to find himself on three occasions, in spite of his bravado, in spite of his self-confidence, in spite of his asseveration, though all deny you, I will not do that, Lord. I'm willing to die for you. Nonetheless, that night, as the Lord Jesus told him, Peter would deny him three times. And yet I love what the Lord says to him in Luke 22. Peter, I have prayed for you. Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. So is this going to be a failure that's irrevocable? Is this going to be Peter losing his salvation because he just couldn't be faithful enough in the end? No, it's absolutely impossible because our salvation doesn't depend on our faithfulness. It depends on his. It depends on the one who's praying for us, the one who ever lives to make intercession for us, the one who says we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise unto the day of redemption, the one who says he holds us in his hand and the Father holds us in his hand. If you can break and overcome the power of an almighty triune God, then you can be lost. But I tell you, such a thing is an impossibility. Because the risen Christ is praying for you and the Father and the Spirit are going to make sure if you're a real believer that your faith will not fail permanently and irrevocably. You may be tested. You may fall. We all do sooner or later. But there's always the Lord Jesus to go back to. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as 1 John 1, 9 says. So thanks be to God, as we go through the wilderness where we're tested, we have God in the midst, and he has appointed priesthood for worship and service. But if we come over to chapter 5 then, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, 
sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself, Numbers 5. I was feeling so good about already being halfway through the first 10 chapters, I jumped the book. Numbers 5, thank you. Verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. Now, in having the Lord in the midst of our community and in the midst of our lives, what the Lord here demands is separation from defilement. Or you may recognize it by another common Bible word. It means the same thing. It's the idea of holiness. Holiness has two aspects. There's a negative aspect, which we see in chapter 5. And in chapter 6, we see the positive aspect. Either way, you can write over Deuteronomy 5 and 6, separation. So if you're following along, we've had warfare in chapter 1. We've had identity in chapter 2. In chapters 3 and 4, we've had worship and service. And now in chapters 5 and 6, we're going to have separation. First, the negative in chapter 5. That is separation from what defiles. And then the positive in chapter 6. That is separation unto the Lord. Now the Lord here had them put out everyone that was defiled. And these were various conditions that would render a person ceremonially defiled. They couldn't come and worship at the Lord's house until they were cleansed of these maladies. Uh, The second part of the chapter deals with a different situation where a husband begins to have doubts about his wife's fidelity. And he begins to wonder if she's been unfaithful. So the Lord, in his great mercy, orchestrates an empirical test to demonstrate the innocence of the woman so that her testimony and her her relationship in the family can be safeguarded. Now, of course, the flip side is, if the woman has committed adultery and been involved in it, This is also going to expose that because God takes sin very seriously. He doesn't paper it over. God wants his people to be separate from that which would defile them, that which makes them unclean. And we have to be careful that while we live in a day where we say, well, we're not under law, we're under grace. We must remember that the grace of God is not license. As Paul argues in Romans 6, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid, may it never be. God has saved us to be a holy people, to be apart from that which is defiled. Now, every person who enters into marriage, I'm sure, ought to. Certainly, every believing person enters into marriage wanting for their spouse to be pure, wanting for them to be kept undefiled from other people. What is that about? Is that merely that we're on some kind of an ego trip and we're possessive and we say, no, I don't want my wife going around with other men? No, no, no. I know that that lifestyle would pollute my wife and would render everything in her life tainted. And if I lived that lifestyle, it would do that to me as well. There's no such thing as little sin. Sin is like a spiritual cancer. 
It eats away at someone. It permeates. It spreads. That's why leprosy is such a good picture of sin. And so sin has to be dealt with. It ought to be avoided. We ought to shun it. We ought to abstain from it. But if someone is engaged in sin, well, it has to be judged. They have to expose that. They ought to take it themselves to the Lord and confess it. But if it was being covered up, the Lord here had this ceremony whereby it would be demonstrated if there was really guilt or if this was just a husband who was overly jealous in a negative way. So the Lord had the desire here that there should be purity in the camp, a separation from that which defiles. But if you go to chapter 6, you'll see it's quite different. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 1, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor shall he eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Now, if you follow through the vine in Scripture, and particularly wine, it's associated with man's joy. So, for example, to name one spot, Psalm 104, that speaks so much about the providence of God in creation, tells us that he gives bread to feed man, oil to make his face shine, I guess that was the forerunner of Mary Kay and Avon. And then uh, wine, which maketh glad the heart of man. Or Song of Songs 2 says, He hath brought me into his banqueting house, literally his Beit Yayin, his house of wine, and his banner over me is love. Or in John 2, you can see the Lord coming into a wedding at Cana of Galilee, where the water has run out, where the pots of purification of the Jews, man's religion, hasn't been able to bring joy to the um, wedding because the wine has run out. I think I said water before, excuse me. The wine is running out. The Lord takes what man brought that was empty and he fills it and he transforms it into wine, that which speaks of joy. So here a Nazarite was saying, I'm separating myself during the time of my consecration from natural joy. There are things that I could do, there are things I could enjoy, but for a time, I am going to separate myself from these things that I may be devoted to the Lord. Now, this is hard for a red-blooded American like myself to really enter into because I've grown up in a time and a place where I hear it all the time that I deserve the best of everything and I deserve to have my choice and I deserve a good vacation, and I deserve to have fun, and I owe it to myself to go out and enjoy all that this life has to offer. Well, don't get me wrong. The Lord is no enemy of true joy. And the Lord, as the New Testament reminds us, gives us all things richly to enjoy. So there are many things we can enjoy, food and experiences, and this beautiful park, for example. We can enjoy those things to the glory of God. But there are other things that might be quite natural. There's nothing inherently sinful in them. There would be nothing wrong in ordinary circumstances in us doing them. But we may have to put those things aside for sake of the Lord and his glory. 
1 Corinthians 7 says one of those things might be marriage. That we may be those who God has given the gift of singleness to. Or we might have to put aside our independence and singleness. And God says, no, I give to you the gift of marriage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 7 says, God gives to each his proper gift, his proper charisma. uh, The word from which we derive charismatic, having to do with the gifts. So the Lord might call us to not be married for the sake of his work, or he might call us to be married for the sake of his work. The key thing is, 1 Corinthians 7 says, we are to be married in the Lord. So if you marry, that ought to be the will of God for you. That ought to be what God is calling you to, what the Lord is leading you to as you seek the Lord. Or if you remain single, that you accept that from the Lord, that again, you're seeking the Lord, and that's the pathway that the Lord has led you in. You're putting aside something natural or put it in either way. You're putting aside things that are natural to serve the Lord. Secondly, they were to have, verse 5 says, all the days of the vow, his separation, no razor shall come upon his head. The very famous no haircut clause of the Nazarite vow, because you'll know in the life of Samson that each of these three aspects of the Nazarite vow were broken in his life. The third thing is the Nazarite wasn't to touch anything that was dead. Because in Scripture, what is dead corrupts. And to touch something dead corrupts someone. So there's this positive separation to the Lord. You say, well, that all sounds negative. You're putting aside the fruit of the vine. You're not going to care about your personal appearance in one sense. And you're not going to touch something dead. Yes, but the positive is that you're saying, I'm devoting myself to the Lord. I'm going to serve the Lord. Now, for them, it might be a temporary situation. But do you know, for us in this age, we're called to something higher. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto the Lord, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So in light of what the Lord Jesus has done in purchasing us by his blood, the natural, logical, and indeed spiritual thing to do is give our all to the Lord, body, soul, and spirit, so to speak, the lock, stock, and barrel of humanity. We're saying, all of me, why not take all of me, Lord? You take my whole being, take my life and let it be, as the old hymn says. We're devoting ourselves to the Lord. Now, that's an important point to make. Because a lot of people have the idea about believers. Oh, you Christians are all about do's and don'ts, you know? I don't smoke or chew or go with girls that do. And indeed, I made Naomi give up her pipe when we got married. No, I'm just just kidding. That's not what holiness is about, is it? Holiness is a relationship where we are in love with the Lord and enraptured with his love. And we say it's not a hardship for me in that sense to give up things that would get in the way of my enjoying the Lord. I want to know the Lord. I want to do his will. I want to get closer to him. It's not hard for me to not go out with other women. Why? Because I'm married to Naomi. She's the main woman for me. She's the one I want to be with all the time. Well, how much more our relationship with God? We want to be with him. We want to know him. We want to grow in him. That's what holiness is all about. So we have this idea of separation in chapters 5 and 6. Now, chapter 7, we could write over offering that the Lord expects us to give what he's given. And we don't have time to stop and speak about that. 
in chapters 8 through 10, we're going to get various things to do with guidance. Guidance. It starts with, in chapter 8, the lampstand is set up in the tabernacle. What light does a Christian follow? Do we follow the light of man's opinion today? Do we follow the spirit of the age, which says that you should be free to live any way you want to live? We say, no, we reject that. We follow the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls himself in John 8, the light of the world. In his light, we see light. His word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. So we follow his light. And then it speaks about the cleansing of the Levites, which were going to be involved in guidance as well through teaching of the law. And in the case of the high priest with the Urim and Thummim. But then the Passover, that even as they're being guided by the Lord forward toward the land, there's a looking back saying we must never forget that there was a great price paid for us, that everything we have and our identity goes back to that Passover lamb sacrificed for us. And 1 Corinthians 5 reminds us that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So he calls us to this new life of eating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not the literal feast, but what the feast spoke of, a holy life in the context of 1 Corinthians 5. But then chapter 9 in the second part from verses 15 onward talks about the guiding cloud, how by day the Lord's presence would be over the dwelling place, over the tabernacle, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They would follow the Lord. And then chapter 10 talks about the trumpets, which as they watched the cloud and ascertained, yes, it's time to move or it's time to stop and stay, trumpets would be used to direct the camp of Israel. And trumpets are going to be used in directing God's people again when the Lord Jesus descends with the the great assembling shout and with the voice of the archangel and the great trump shall sound and the church will be called to meet him in the air. Still later, a trumpet will sound in the tribulation period in Matthew 24 as the Lord gathers his elect from one corner of the earth to the other and takes the people of his believing remnant out at the end of the tribulation and saves them. And so trumpets are used for guidance, even for assembling God's people. Well, there you have it. We got through 10 chapters. And if we may summarize, God says, as you go through this wilderness, yes, it's a battle. Yes, it's a test. But look at the resources I've given you. I'm in your midst. I'm with you every step of the way. The one who says to us, I am with you. Or in New Testament terms, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Or I am with you even unto the end of the age. The Lord says it so many times, doesn't he? And the Lord says, look at what I've given you. I've given you a place to worship and serve me. I've given you teaching about separation from what defiles and positive consecration to me, separating yourself to serve me. And I've given you guidance. So the Lord gives us all the resources we need. He certainly did to Israel, give them all the resources they need to go through the wilderness. How much more the church who can say we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, who can say that the Lord is with us. May God bless the word to our hearts. Father, we just pray that the Spirit of God would apply this where it needs to be applied and would deal with every heart here. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen.